This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Hello, folks. Like with all good things, we can try to accommodate all variables when we are doing a recording, but today's episode was plagued by a pretty horrific thunderstorm that had me hiding in a basement lest, you know, the house get whipped and spun away like in a certain movie we all remember from when we were kids. So there's a little bit of feedback. I apologize, but I hope you enjoy. And if you do enjoy today's episode on supervision and anxiety from a student's perspective, then be sure to come back for part two on August 15th. It will go live with Juliana Miller, the director of clinical supervision at University of South Carolina, where she tackles setting supervision straight from a supervisor's perspective. And enjoy. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. 
Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbyteatspeechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted Ashna CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category, and this is one that's been heavy on my heart, honestly, for the past several months. Um, I am hoping that you lovely folks actually read the ASHA Leader Magazine when it comes to your door instead of it you know, using it as a coaster as it normally does after I read it in my home. Um, And if so, then hopefully last year, y'all were privy to the article about quality supervision and the concerns for bullying that many of our student clinicians are now reporting. Well, I have personally been there and done that as a student, Um, being fearful of a supervisor that she held sway over my final grade and I had to do as exactly as I was told or that dreaded else. In truth, that was my personal catalyst for becoming a clinical supervisor to do my part in a positive way with the next round of student clinicians. Um, go forward several, several years, um, as I have the gray hairs to prove it. <laughs> and then came that crucial conversation with the past student, uh, about her real life clinical experiences as a student clinician. And we decided right then and there while she was riding shotgun in my car in between patient sessions, um, that we were going to address this concern from the mouth and the honest, open perspective of a student. So on that note, let me introduce Miss Stephanie Shank, who has been brave enough to bear her soul and speak the truth about millennials, anxiety, and supervision fears. So Miss Stephanie, I'm going to pass it to you today, lady. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. I'm so excited to be a part of this podcast. So a little bit about me. I received my undergraduate degree from the University of Arizona in speech language and hearing sciences and with a minor in special education. Then I moved out to South Carolina and I'm attending University of South Carolina um, to get my master's degree in speech pathology. And I'm currently completing my final externship at the Medical University of South Carolina. And I'm working on the craniofacial team there. And then after that, I am moving to Myrtle Beach in the fall to start um, a clinical fellowship in pediatric home health. And you're going to work with the special babies up in Ori County. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're going to make it better. Folks, I'm so excited about this. I can't even begin to describe it. So yay, Stephanie. I'm so excited. Uh, well, thank you for coming um, uh, to uh, Crash Course Individuals. If they have not um, read that article, um, I think... We, we glossed over it in the ASHA Leader, but then um, it came up again on um, the ASHA Leader Facebook page. And it had like hundreds of hits and hundreds of comments about um, 
all these people taking both sides, like there's nothing wrong with the current supervision model. And then all of this commentary, like, you know, oh, I hated my supervisor. She was so mean to me in these horror stories. And um, then you and I started talking about it. And one thing led to another. And you and I are a puddle of mud and both of us are crying <laughs> in my car. And I was like, okay, we're clearly scarred. Let's fix this. Um, so start me in the deep, dark, scary hole of um, what's really going on with millennials, because I have seen the shift um, over the course of the last couple of years where I feel like um, a lot more of the students are having um, baseline, really truthful baseline anxiety and stress. And um, I don't know if that's part of our practicums and speech pathology as a whole, because it's becoming so competitive and more rigorous or um, if it's just a generational thing, because I am a different generation. (laughs) Um, So start me there. So what's going on? So I actually started with anxiety in undergrad and I really think it stemmed from, am I good enough? Like you're going through undergrad and I mean, for me, I knew that I had to go to graduate school. Um, I picked speech pathology from the get-go. Like as soon as I started undergrad, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And from then on, there was this pressure that I put on myself that, you know, your professors put on you. But I mean, one thing that I might be a little bit different from other people is my parents never put pressure on me academically. They were always proud of me, um, very supportive. But I definitely put... Your mom just wants grandchildren. That's the only pressure. <laughs> Your mother wants grandchildren. Yes, exactly. But she can wait a little while for that. She's um, <laughs> got goose and bear. You're fine. Yes. And I think ultimately it was going through undergrad that I needed to make sure I had above a 3.5 GPA to be considered for graduate programs. I needed to make my make sure my GRE scores were above average. Um I needed to make sure, okay, I at least have some research experience. I needed to build myself up on my resume. I just felt like I needed to do all of these extra things to ensure that I got into graduate school. And I actually read this article on the ASHA leader of this one graduate student who she phrased it as, am I good enough? And she talked about, she seemed to have a little bit of different experiences than I did, where she thought undergrad was more stressful than graduate school. But I kind of found it the opposite, where my senior year in undergrad was really stressful, like waiting to hear back from graduate schools to find out if I was accepted. And then I thought, okay, going into grad school, it shouldn't be as competitive. It should, you know, be a relief that I made it. And I just need to get through the program, take the classes, get the experience, and I should be fine. But the graduate school brought in a whole other... (sighs) anxiety inducing issue on its own, where, okay, I mean, different programs are different. But the one that I was a part of, you know, you're really thrown into therapy, second week, you start your, your graduate school, you are giving therapy. And looking back, that was the best way for me to learn is to really just get thrown in there. And I had a really great supervisor my first semester in the clinic. She was awesome. She was so supportive. I mean, she understood that, you know, I've never given therapy before. I have no idea what I'm doing, but she gave me additional resources to look through and just 
tried to set me up for success, which was amazing. And I was also out of school my first semester. So we spent half our time in the clinic and then we also were in the school. And I also had an amazing supervisor. I mean, my first semester, I was really lucky. Um, great supervisors who were just really supportive. Um, I had experience with a not so great supervisor um, last summer who she just didn't support me in any way where I felt like I was with her doing um, private practice and home health. So we switched off each day and she never once got to know me, like never asked me personal questions about myself, like never really tried to understand who I was as a person and what type of clinician I was. Um, more of just like she talked about herself, which is fine. I, I mean, totally fine. Like I got to know her well. Um, but then also with the feedback she gave me, um, it was more of like, okay, you, uh, I guess I should touch on this too. She brought in bags to therapy in home health. Oh, and this yeah. is no, no, we're supposed to be bagless. There's actual <laughs> guidelines and policies. This happens. You know what? I was the queen of toy bags up until like a couple of years ago. So literally been there, done that. You're looking at it. I mean, yes. I'll admit I'm a reformed PEX guru. <laughs> so thank you, South Carolina Sister Technology <laughs> Office for whipping my little kickers into shape. So we have been there, done that. Yes. yes. But with that type of therapy in itself, like... I'm lugging in this 20 pound bag to this patient's home and I'm basically limiting what I can do in therapy to that bag. Like, and her biggest critique that she gave me was that she was just like, you know, you're kind of just doing the same thing over and over with this kid in each therapy session. She's like, you need to make it more versatile. Like you need to incorporate this and this. But the thing is she never showed me how to do it. She, just told me like, you need to make a change, but she wouldn't help me get there. And on top of that, I was just like, she only taught me what to use in the bag. And so that's all I knew how to teach the child to do. Um, and it did get repetitive probably for me and the child. And I just felt stuck where I'm like, okay, I really don't even think they're making progress. I don't even think like these kids are interested in even therapy like I just don't feel like it's fun anymore because the novelty of doing something new in therapy is kind of wearing off because we're stuck to the same things and that was her biggest critique of me and that was what separated her from um giving me an A like I ended the practicum with a B based on her biggest feedback being like I just she was like it'll come with experience but um you need to make sure you make your therapy sessions different each time. Okay. So a couple of thoughts. It sounds like one, um, anxiety was brought on by fear of being insufficient, which honey, you're not, you're amazing. Um, folks out there, if you have the doubts, don't stress, take a big deep breath, roll your shoulders back, put your head up. You've got this. Okay. That's how many times we got this. We're fine. I'm fine. It's fine. That's like our personal <laughs> speech therapy motto. I'm fine. You're fine. We're fine. Um, um, no, but truthfully you are. And two, um, from the clinical supervision perspective, I look back on what I put my first few students through and I was under the misinformation 
when I first took a student that y'all knew what you were doing when you came to us. Um, forgetting in just a few short years that when I started my clinical supervision, I didn't know uh, my elbow from my big toe, to put it in <laughs> a PC terminology, and everybody um, listening is laughing. Um, but it's our responsibilities to help you as a student grow. We are supposed to model. We are supposed to give visual, verbal, um, uh, written feedback to help you get there. So, and if you're not modeled in a versatile manner or in how to do things, um, we as clinicians need to step it up and give that to you. So, um, um, every once in a while, like what I did to my sweet, fabulous, amazing student today, I threw her out there and then yes. and rescued, <laughs> but I wanted to see where we would start. So I threw first and then caught, but it's our responsibility as, um, the clinical supervisor to remember that you guys don't know what you're doing. Like we, we have to model it. Um, so, um, what are, can you like rattle off one or two? Mm-hmm. No, give me a couple. What were really good supports that past um, supervisors have given you? One, to handle your anxiety to work through the stressful practicum, and two, to help you grow as a clinician. Okay, so for the first question, um, I think having an open dialogue with your supervisor, so establishing just a relationship with your supervisor to even bring up the fact that you have anxiety is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only brought it up to supervisors that I felt comfortable with. And that was through them getting to know me, just asking me basic questions like where I'm from, where I grew up, um, what brought me into speech, just really getting to know me. And that really helped me talk about my anxiety. And then they're very open. Like if you ever need anything, if you need to step outside and just take a breather, if you're getting too overwhelmed with something like, let me know, and I can try and help you as best as I could. And just that alone, knowing that they were there to support me eased my anxiety so much. I mean, it did like tremendously. And what was the second question? (laughs) um, examples. Okay. So we, um, strategies to help, um, with your anxiety, but then strategies to help you grow as a clinician. Yes. And to help me grow as a clinician, I find it important. Like when you first start off with a new supervisor is to establish expectations, um, in the beginning of the internship, this helps with my anxiety too, but It helps know like what's expected of me like right away as I'm getting more comfortable, um, even towards the end of the um, internship. Like, am I expected to give a presentation on my favorite topic that I've learned over the the semester? Or am I expected to take on the whole caseload of the day by the end of the semester without support? Like, even though they're there to give it to me if I need it. Um, So I think establishing expectations. And one of my supervisors... She also told me like at the end of each week, she'd go over like, okay, so next week I want you to um, be able to go back to the parents and explain what you did in therapy. Next week, I want you to be able to um, complete all of the evaluation reports um, on your own, but you're more than welcome to ask me questions if they come up. Um, Next week, I want you to 
um, evaluate the first half of the caseload, and then I'll help you with the second half. I mean, just kind of breaking down the expectations. So I'm not going in there blind each day, like, okay, is this the day where I'm just going to be thrown to the wolves and just kind of taking on everything or just kind of knowing what to expect as I go along. And that's really helped my anxiety um, tremendously. So I remember when you told me you had the supervisor who laid out for you on Friday, what she expected you to do on Monday. I was like, Ooh, I need to start doing that. That's wicked smart because I never had a supervisor tell me that. Like I never had a supervisor. I'm like, you know, I've taken classes on supervision, but like they didn't tell me like, do this. It's more like, Hey, guess what? You can take students now. So here's a student. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was how it was framed to me. But, um, it turns out Asha has even given guidance on changing um, graduate programs so that it, when you're a graduate student embedded within grad programs now, you're supposed to have a class on supervision. Um, I love that. I think they told me that they started that um, here locally with the cohort that just it's like going into their second year, I guess. Okay. Um, okay. So um, the year behind you, I think it's like embedded in one of the classes, okay. um, but it's to meet the um, and folks, if you don't know, Asha has changed the requirements for 2020 effective 2020. You have to um, have, I think it's two hours of supervision training ev- um, part of your 30 CEs. Um so like 28 CEs and other topics. But if you want to be a clinical supervisor, two of those have to specifically be on supervision because they're making an effort to fix this giant problem that everybody has. How lovely is that? <laughs> oh my right. I, you can't see it, ladies and gentlemen. I can see her eyes through the lovely camera and she's like, yes, do the thing. <laughs> um, but um you know, it has it has improved drastically. Um, I went to a talk at Shaw, the Speech Hearing Association, of Virginia. Um, it's by a professor from Radford, who I have her notes, and I want to message her because I want to interview her. She was I had girl crush on her. She was cool, um, and she talked about um, uh, um, talked about and provided examples of a written feedback. And I was like, you know, realistically, that would be fantastic to provide written feedback. However. In my particular setting, like the poor student is, ha- is stuck riding shotgun in my car all day long um, that probably smells like small children because, you know, I have sons um, and they take their shoes off in the car and dump all the sand out. And, you know, providing written feedback would be awkward because I'm literally with you the entire day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see how in other settings at like an outpatient clinic where you're not with them and you might have a different caseload, um, you know, once they're more independent, that would be a great support. Right. And I think that's also important too, that students and supervisors need to sit down and figure out what type of feedback is best for that student. Where I had a supervisor who also asked me, like, what are you, what will help you learn the best? Like, what type of feedback? And I, and she said, would you like me to give you feedback, if possible, during the session, if we have a moment to talk about it? Or would you like to give me all the feedback towards the end of the session? And I told her I preferred whatever would be the easiest um, during that time. Because I know sometimes in therapy sessions, you're, cannot give feedback right away. 
So it'd be better to get it towards the end of the session when you're done with therapy and it's just you and the supervisor. But also sometimes in the moment when I'm giving therapy, I want immediate feedback from my supervisor. Like, is this, is this the right thing to do? Like, is this what I should be doing? Or did I word this correctly? Um, so in that type of way, like, I really like that. And I really like verbal feedback. I mean, written feedback is very helpful. And I know with in our program, supervisors are required to give like, I think three written feedback throughout the semester. Um, <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm like hanging my head because I barely squeak by with one. But yeah, they keep sending you lovely ladies to me to torture. So, anyway. But I, I think it's more of like, if you're not consistently getting that verbal feedback, they want to make sure you're getting feedback in some way. And I think written feedback is just the easiest to like trace back. Like, okay, you did get feedback, you know, this month, this month, and this month throughout your internship. Um, whereas verbal feedback, you can get all day, every day, all day long. So um, I think that's what's been really helpful too, is talking with your, with your supervisor in the beginning to figure out what type of feedback would be best for both of you and for the type of setting you're into. Um, I... Um, I very much think feedback should be tied back to that book called the five love languages. Mm, yeah. Have you read that? I love this book because, yes. um, folks, if you have not read the five love languages, do yourself a solid and go read the five love languages. And you're like, what does that have to do with supervision, Michelle? But it talks about how we each need, um, a different love language in order to grow as a person. And we are helping these students grow. That's my job. I mean, that's not technically my job. My job is a speech pathologist and I do this um, supervision um, because I love taking students. You guys challenge me and I, I love, I love, um, if you've never had a student, take a student. It's like giving birth without the actual pregnancy and labor pains. <laughs> it's wonderful because like we make miniature versions of our like hopefully best parts of ourselves and send them out into the world. And you're like, yes, they're, they know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> if not, at least if they've had me, they're going to smile while they're making beautiful mistakes, but they're still going to own it. Woo! <laughs> um, all right. So to get us back on track, um, uh, your supervision in different practicums, I do feel like there for at least, and bear in mind, I went to school like a billion years ago. Um, I felt like my supervision in the hospital that I worked at um, was um, sporadic because of um, um, the fluctuation in caseload. Mm -hmm. I felt like, and it was all verbal there, nothing written, all verbal. Um, I got a stack of written examples given to me, but not as well explained. Um, and then at the nursing home, um, or I guess technically it was like a LTAC, um, uh, rehab floor, um, of like, it was like a tiered building. Um, there was zero written feedback and very limited verbal feedback. And then when I got it, it was cutting. It was not, it was not delivered in a manner to build my soul up. And mm -hmm. there was about a 10 year age difference between myself and the um, supervisor, which is about like the age difference I see between now and my students, maybe, maybe 15, but like, you know, <laughs> um, 
And then at the elementary school that I was clinically supervised in, I never saw my supervisor, like ever, like totally different building as far as I could tell. But those were the only three practicum sites that I had. And so like, I know you ladies, y'all get like five practicums. Yes, Um, we have a ton. Yeah. But did you see a consistent difference based off of your locations and like of where your practicums were? Okay. Yes, I did. There, um, there is quite a difference. Out of outside was in the room, whether she was at her desk, which was like two feet away from the table that I was working at with the child. Um, so she was pretty much always there unless she had to quickly go run to talk to a teacher or something, but she was always there. It was also my first semester. So I needed a, a, a lot more supervision. Um, the following summer was when then I had my next outside placement and that was private practice and home health. So home health, she was with me all the time because we carpooled together. Um, I had a lot of supervision, but she was also the one that didn't really provide me great feedback. Um, so she was the one where she would tell me, okay, you need to change this, but she wouldn't show me how to do it. Um, and again, folks, they don't so, knowing this. We have to show them. Otherwise, they don't know. Yes. And then the fall, I was with you doing home health. And so you're with me all the time, but I had such great feedback. And after we left every single person's house, you always asked me if I had any questions. And that like, even just someone asking you that opens up a dialogue for me to like ask the questions that I had, or if I didn't have any questions, I'm like, no, but I'm sure I will at the next house. Or if I remember it, I'll definitely ask you. Um, I mean, so you're really great about asking me if I ever had any questions, if I needed anything, if I was doing okay, if I was overwhelmed, like all the questions and I felt very supported. And that was probably one of my favorite placements just because I had such great support going through it. And I think the fall semester was when I really learned the most. I mean, I had such great feedback. I had such great supervision but you also did throw me out there and you're like, okay, so this next person's house, I want you to give the therapy. Um, but you always chimed in if you even sense that I was c- going to get stuck or if I didn't really know what to do with what the child said. Or, I mean, if I had any like hesitation, you were, you would jump in and help me. But just that alone helped build the independence for me. And even for my next placement that spring, I was at a nursing home which is a completely different population setting, everything. But I became independent very quickly. And I was even able to translate what I had learned with you and like medical terminology to the nursing home. Um, and I was able to be independent pretty quickly. And my supervisor, I shadowed her for a couple weeks and she would come into me with some, um, come into sessions with me that she thought would be a little bit trickier. But she let me be pretty independent. And I mean, that was my last year of graduate school. Um, so she wanted me just to see yeah. if I could go out and do it. Yeah. And so that really helped me become even more independent. And I felt like each semester has kind of built it on each other. And I've been able to go in with more confidence um, because I have 
towards the end have really great supervisors. And then this summer, you have my girl crush. Yes. I'm, I'm going to say it. Mel- you have Melissa, who I have like beg, borrow, pleaded, and she will be doing a podcast for us one on um, velopharyngeal insufficiency and one on um, cleft palate and feeding. And like, y'all, that is the woman I want to be a fly on the wall in the room with her. And the fact that you get to spend a semester with her, I'm like, so jealous of she is amazing and I don't quite think she knows how hilarious she is because she cracks me up and she says things with such a straight face but like I just oh she's hilarious but she's so smart and she's joyful and she's kind and compassionate and she's another one that like will ask you are right, do you have any questions yes but like she, and not lip service but like genuinely what questions do you have? Yes. And uh, like she asked me that at the end of every day, basically, have you had any questions? Do you feel like we're going too fast? She also, the criticism she gives me or like the feedback, I guess, is great too, because she tells me things that I did good with, which helps me know for future that, okay, keep doing what I'm doing. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. But then she also tells me, okay, these are a couple of things that you could work on or things that you could remember to do um, this time. And she also sets up expectations week to week because with that placement, it's the most diverse placement I've ever been in where we do something different every single day, which can be overwhelming, but in like the best way, because I'm learning things that I would never learn anywhere else. Yeah. Um, Since being in like acute care two days a week, um, we do feeding clinic, which is kind of, outpatient. Um, and then we do outpatient at their other building with Artic, but it's articulation with kids that had cleft lip, cleft palate, VPI. So, and these, it's just been amazing, but it's been a huge learning curve. Um, even just learning how to work the new software on their computer has been a huge learning curve. I am, I am, okay. I am so glad you said that because I did not have that embedded in our example questions, but you are absolutely right. We forget that not only are you having to learn therapeutic skills in a new setting, but by golly, you even have to figure out how each one of us writes a soap note differently. Yes. And I mean, you know, we, we all have our unique setup and then we expect you guys to become mini molds exactly to what we are, but y'all come from a university clinic where they want a three page soap note. And then you turn around and land in my car and I'm like, sweetheart, I need it like four to seven sentences, but capture all the things in a run on sentence and doctors will only read that. But But for each setting, you have to do an adi- I mean, that's ex- that's that's extra work. Um, yes, we, we it is, and it's extra things to remember. And even with where I'm at this summer, we have a different template for each day. Like we have a different form or a way of writing things depending on if we're doing the feeding clinic, if we're doing outpatient, if we're doing acute care, if we're doing cranio clinic if we're doing VPI I mean we do so many different things and all of them have different templates it's the same system but it's um to learn yes 
Yes. Yes. And, and with that, we have to be supportive and empathetic and understanding and patience. And people read the five love languages. Do yourself a solid. Pick up Crucial Conversations. Ooh, have you read Crucial Conversations? I have not read that. Oh, you'll, you'll love. Um, I had a fantastic um, rehab manager for my CF and our, um, staff meetings, we read crucial conversations. And I remember being a CF and thinking, what has this got to do with me? And rah, 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 rah. <laughs> And then like, after reading the first chapter, I was like, yeah, okay. I'm hooked. Like I go hot all the time. Like, I mean, I go hot, other people may go cold, but like I go hot and you know, when, when hot meets cold, it, you know, might <laughs> So, um, do you lovely people enjoy the, um, sound effect of that? That <laughs> very professional. Um, all right. So, um, we, we have interspersed the baseline anxiety and with, um, grad school. And I, I have been very honest my entire career, um, my entire career. I've been very honest the last three years of my professional career <laughs> about um, uh, just how um, I personally struggle and have to take ownership of my ADD and my ADHD. And as long as I jog um, or hit the gym, I'm pretty well managed. Um, but it took me longer to embrace my anxiety disorder. And um, it was finally... I could finally own it and discuss it because you helped me grow. And that was super emotional for me because I have multiple hats. I have, <laughs> that's a fair statement. I wear a lot of hats for a lot of different um, organizations and things. And um, I perpetually feel not perpetually feel, but a lot of times like I am drowning and that I am insufficient and that I am not enough and, um, all the of the world. Um, yeah. As we're both sighing, yeah. you know, we're like burying our soul for all of humankind to pass judgment on. Um, I also said humankind instead of humanity, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Don't learn. Talk. I teach people how to use AAC devices and take PON. So there's that. Um, I will send them to Melissa. I'll send them your way for the Arctic of phonology. Um, but, um, on that note, um, what are what are specific strategies? If there's another student that's listening, what are specific strategies that you would give them to help them um, overcome this? And I, we're not generalizing that all millennials have anxiety disorders. What we're saying is that we do see an increase in it, but part of me wonders, is that because this is a generation that grew up with diagnoses? Um, that it's the norm to have a diagnosis. Whereas in my generation, um, and I think I'm that microcosm between Gen X and millennials, I'm like on the tail end of both. Um, uh, it was still um, an acceptance thing versus where you're dealing with some of our older generations and the general philosophy is suck it up, buttercup. Um, yeah. um, which you know, is not good. It is not good to always be told to suck it up, buttercup. I mean, occasionally every once in a while, a good kick yes. in the pants will do you good. But um, <laughs> um, so what strategies would you have um, for the students that are listening? Um, so one thing 
It took me. Graduate. I lost you. I lost your signal. Try that again, love. Okay. Hang on. Um, We get to the good part, the good recommendations, and then our phone fades. Okay. There. Try it again. (laughs) All right. So some strategies that have helped me with my anxiety throughout graduate school. It took me a while to get to this point, but always making time for myself. So that has been the number one thing to help with my anxiety is, I mean, in graduate school, you're seeing patients five days a week. You're also taking a full caseload of classes. So school, you're just fully invested in school. But it's so important that I tried to make it an effort that at least Saturday or Sunday, I wasn't going to do any homework. It didn't always happen. But on Friday, I'd be like, okay, I at least need to make some time for myself this weekend to where I just go hang out with my friends. I go for a walk, actually do some leisurely reading, um, just do something that isn't school related because I can get so just enveloped in everything school and get so overwhelmed and always thinking about, okay, I have all of this to do this weekend, all of this to do next week. Um, but actually like making time for myself and even in the evening, sometimes if I just have a super long day, I will just go watch an hour of TV, like, or go read for an hour. Or there have been times where I've seriously sat on my couch in silence for an hour with no distractions. And it's been like the best thing ever. And my mom thinks I'm so weird that I just go home and sit on my couch in silence, but I love it. Like it helps me so much and I'm not even meditating. I'm just laying on the couch and just not moving. And it's the best thing ever. I'm I'm imagining if I attempted to lay on the couch for even 30 seconds, I know a three-year-old, a five-year-old and two dogs would be like, ma, 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 ma. And then somebody would be like, I pooped. I need help wiping or, you know, like mom problems. Because the second you sit still as a mom and there's numerous women that are vigorously shaking their head, yes, it, you know, that's when everybody needs a thing. So, um, uh, for us, um, on our end, if you do have little ones and a lot of our students nowadays do have children, Mm -hmm. um, wake up early y'all wake up a little extra early. Um, I, I know this, this conversation has nothing to do with a marriage. However, my husband and I to help me with my anxiety and my overwhelming and also to help him so that he could process his day because he has a high pressure job. Um, we about, I don't know, a year ago started waking up early and I mean early and we have coffee together every morning so we can just sit there. And sometimes it's in silence where we hold each other's hand and drink coffee because we're super cheesy. And I love that. But like that that's the only way we can actually see each other because at the end of the day, we're just done. I mean, like I have given all I can from, you know, six o'clock in the morning until eight 45. And then I get 15 minutes of Pinterest, um, because pinning boards is a wonderful downtime. Maybe that's what I do to help anxiety. Um, I'm not telling you to go out and buy Pinterest. I don't know if you have to pay for it. I think it's free, but it's, no. It's free. It's free. Yeah. I'm not pitching their product. I'm just saying that helps my mental health. Uh, okay. I mean, that's also important, though, is having a good support system. So yeah. 
I mean, you have your husband, you have a routine with your husband that you do every single morning. Like, and my support system was after every single day, I'd call my mom and cry and complain and do whatever I needed to do to just get the day off my chest. And most of the time, she just didn't have any words of wisdom, which was fine. I just needed someone to listen to. Word vomit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's that's a lovely technical term, word vomit. <laughs> okay. So um, I think between us, we've come up with um, have a conversation with a loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, sometimes um, anxiety disorders are big, bad and ugly and a coffee with a mate or a call with a mom or, and um, a jog or a lay down on the couch is not going to cut it. And when it's that bad, we need to seek actual professional assistance. Um, I am and I've been honest in other venues and other avenues. I'm a domestic abuse survivor um, from my crazy ex-husband. And, um, after I got out and, um, met a bartender and, you know, all the things, um, as numerous women are now blushing, they're like, been there, done that. Um, uh, you know, there was, um, I needed to seek, um, actual, counseling from a psychologist to find out that I wasn't nuts for being angry and in a big, deep, dark place because of, you know, what I had gone through. Um, and I know I suffered from postpartum anxiety horribly. So after the birth of our first son, um, uh, didn't realize what it was until a, uh, an interpreter for a patient reached over and took my hand when I was having difficulty catching my breath during a therapy session. And she goes, so how's your postpartum anxiety after I'd been back to work for like a month? And I was like, is that what this is? I don't think it's good. I think it's um, Bless her. You know, I saw her, um, our oldest is five and I saw her at a, uh, a conference in March and I thanked her then. And I now, whenever I get a um, post NICU patient, I always ask the parents, how's your postpartum anxiety and depression? Do we need help? Where are you? So I paid that forward and carried it forward. But, um, and she said, you know, something sweet and lovely. And I, I can listen to her talk. I love her bilingualism. Um, but, um, it is important that we recognize when it's more than what our community and self-help skills can handle. And there is no shame in seeking help. You need to do what's best because if you are not taking care of yourself, then how are you supposed to take care of your students, of your patients that you're working with? You're putting them at risk because you're not taking care of yourself. And as the student supervise, like on the supervisor role, if I don't ask the, if I don't start and as our sweet friend um, would say, build a bridge, if I don't build a bridge, then if I don't start that on day one, what am I going to do when I actually need to have that crucial conversation with the student? When I see them hurting and aching and putting my patients and my license on the line because they're not being managed. To which my next thought is immediately call the university practicum placement director. But um, we should also be able to do it direct. All right. So what do you, what are your thoughts on all that? I definitely agree with seeking help and getting, going to see a therapist. I mean, I saw a therapist for the whole four years that I was an undergrad 
And I went to the same one like every other week or sometimes once a week. It She kind of just varied it based on what I really needed at that time. But I saw her almost the whole four years that I was in undergrad and my anxiety was so severe. It had translated into social situations where I didn't want to go hang out with people. I like would, would just get so anxious. I would have panic attacks flat out. Like even if I was just alone in my room, like I would just start getting worked up over something and I wouldn't be able to control my breathing. And I would in your call, bedroom even. Oh yeah. I mean, it like, it would be if I was thinking about something or something was really going on in my life that like being alone, like really brought up some anxiety where I would have panic attacks and I would call my therapist and she almost always answered if she wasn't in like a therapy session with another patient, she always called me back. And I saw her for four whole years and she has helped me tremendously. She, I couldn't even go to the gym. Like I had such bad anxiety of being around the gym. I know I couldn't go though. I could not go to the gym because I was so afraid of people. Like it was always busy in undergrad. Like there were just so many people and I would just get so overly anxious to where I couldn't even work out. And if I started working out, I felt like I was going to get dizzy and then pass out. And I mean, I just struggled doing anything social my four years, but. Okay. So then my question is, was she the right um, person for you? Yes. I know. um, Like, or did you have to shop around? Um, Okay. Because I know some people and I'm using air quotes for shop around. Like I know some people that they've gone for counseling and the first person was the right fit. And then the second person like, or was not the right fit, but the second person was. So um, that, that's a real thing too. Don't just give it a one-time shot and you're done. If it doesn't feel right. I mean, just like our students and our patients are entitled to like, if we're not the right fit for you and we don't meet your needs, or if we feel the case is outside of our scope of practice, mm-hmm. we, as the recipient of the service, if we don't feel like that, um, uh, psychologist or psychiatrist meets our unique needs, we're allowed to shop around as well. Right. And I got really lucky with her. And I think it had something to do with the first time I went to go seek help, they did a little triage where this lady, I think she was like the secretary, she just kind of sat down with me. Um, I told her what was going on. Actually, it was not the secretary. It was another therapist. But like she did the placements of yeah, who people go to. And I think based off of what I was telling her, she was able to fit me with the best therapist. And she was amazing. My first therapist I went to, so unbelievably amazing. Like, I cannot even, I just, I don't know, she's helped me so much. And I like, I miss her to this day that because she lives in Arizona, so I'm not able to see her anymore. And I did try and go send her an email and say thank you, just out of the blue. I really should because I, to this day, two years later, I still miss her. And which you brought up a good point earlier that like you need to find the right fit. And when I got out here in grad school, my first year, I was so miserable, so miserable that I had even thought about quitting the program because I didn't think I could go through it. Like I was back to that place where I don't feel good enough to get through this program. And 
um, my mom was like, do you need to go see a therapist again? And I'm like, you know what, I probably do. And so I set up another appointment with a different therapist out here in South Carolina. And she was nice, but the connection wasn't there. And I just didn't, I never pursued, like, I didn't go to another therapy session after the first one. And I really wish I spent more of my time finding the right one. But I, I don't know, when you're in grad school, too, you're just kind of like, I just want this easy fix. I want to find the right person. I want to check things off my list. I want to do this and that. And when I noticed that I didn't think she was going to be the right fit for me, I just kind of was like, well, I'll try and remember some of the strategies my old therapist taught me. And it actually worked. Like I went back to some of the worksheets she gave me and tried going through them again and like incorporating them into my daily life. So, I mean, I still used her strategies that she gave me even when I wasn't able to really get the therapy that I needed in graduate school. So, Yeah, but she gave you the supports. She Mm -hmm. provided you a home exercise program that you were able to implement and not just for a box on her to-do list for insurance billing purposes. Yep. Folks, HEP, the home exercise program, (laughs) more than just a box to sign off on for billing purposes. Huzzah! (laughs) Well, I am glad that you stuck it out because um, you are going to um, be doing amazing things. I mean, I know you are now, but wait till you get out there on your own love. I mean, you have such a lovely light and um, our stars are better for it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But it's nice knowing too that I have such a good support system when I do go out on my own, like all of my great supervisors that I've had and they're in the state that I'm staying in too. So. Yes! <laughs> South Carolina. Yes. And I happen to know a certain tiny bear and goose, um, especially the, uh, the goose, my five-year-old, that is his, um, favorite lady. And, um, my three-year-old who has himself gone through a lot of speech therapy, that was his to Tiffany. Cause he couldn't say, <laughs> I kind of lost it a little when I realized he kind of get Stephanie out. I was like, what happened to Tiffany? <laughs> I still have that video of him trying to say my name. Yeah. <laughs> so precious. Uh, All right. Well, if I can, um, one, let me say thank you, because I know this was when I first asked you to do this, you about dropped your glass and was like, (laughs) I am not doing that, Michelle. And I was like, but we, yes, we need you. We we need this. The world needs this. So um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for um, sharing it all. No, thank you for encouraging me to do it. I think the hardest part of anxiety is talking about your own anxiety. I know. So. I know. We did that for like an hour. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, hang on the line. I got to switch this over to do the Q&A. So um, um, give me two shakes of a lamb's tail to hit all the buttons. Okay. All right. Thank all right, you. Hang on. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.